You are listening to The Mark Milton Show with Smash. Hosted by former Department of Justice Tax Division Attorney Mark Milton, the STL tax lawyer. Here's Mark Milton. I should have been a cowboy. I should have learned to rope and ride. I'd be wearing my six shoes, riding my bike. All right, you're listening to The Mark Milton Show with the Smash. This week, we have a very special guest joining us here on The Mark Milton Show. Don Fort, who is the former chief of the IRS Criminal Investigations Division. Smash, I know you've never had any dealings with the criminal division, but this was the top guy <laughs> at the IRS when it comes to criminal investigations and prosecutions. He's now in private practice uh, with Costellanitz and Fink in Washington, D.C., great law firm. He's helping with uh, now defend white-collar and tax criminal investigations. Don, welcome to the Mark Milton Show. Yeah, Mark and Smash, I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. I actually uh, thought of you yesterday, other than, you know, when you were coming on the show, I had a nice lunch at uh, the Capitol Grill, and I had a ribeye steak for lunch with a blue cheese crust, and last time I enjoyed that was with with Don Fort in Las Vegas. That's right. (laughs) uh, Certainly the the last best steak I've had, but you know, It was great. Always enjoy the steak with the blue cheese on it. Absolutely. So, Don, Don, can I ask a quick question? Sure. Uh, Mr. Milton, when he's gambling there in Las Vegas, does he (laughs) roll the dice underhand or overhand? I think that's attorney attorney client privilege information. Is that what it is? (laughs) Thank you, Don. So we were at we were out there on business. Okay, there was a, a an annual tax conference. Uh, the American Bar Association puts on. It's a great conference. It brings uh, tax professionals from around the country to, yeah. to Las Vegas, including uh, some of Don's former co-workers from the IRS as well as the DOJ. Now, Don, you were the top dog at the Criminal Investigations Division uh, for several years, but you started as a, as a special agent um, with the IRS. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into uh, working for the service. Yeah, sure. So I, um, I actually grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and went to Gettysburg College, graduated in 1990, and actually started with IRS criminal investigation in 1991, about the summer of 1991. And kind of interesting, I'll make this abbreviated version, but you know, a lot of people, particularly back then, IRS criminal investigation wasn't terribly well known. You know, this is the days before social media and the internet and the ability to really, you know, market widely. And I went to, you know, Gettysburg College, a pretty small college. And if I hadn't met my now wife of almost 31 years, I probably would have never gone down this path. And the reason for that is because her father-in-law worked for the IRS and was working for the IRS, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and was the one that kind of turned me on to the job because he worked as what's called a, a revenue service representative whose job is really to, 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 um, you know, work on tax treaties and, you know, largely civil matters. But part of what they did, this is before special agents of the IRS were overseas, is he would also handle leads from criminal investigators, special agents in the state. So, you know, he got to have some interaction with special agents and, Knowing that I was going into accounting, you know, kind of you know, got me in touch with a recruiter. And as I did more research and talked to the recruiter and went through the process, 
um, you know, really realized it was something that I wanted to do. Instead of working for a, you know, a big accounting firm and maybe sitting behind a desk all day, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, this just seemed like a great way to apply, you know, the, the investigative abilities with accounting knowledge. So that's, you know, really how I headed down that road. And it was, you know, aside from a short stint at a small government contracting firm as soon as I graduated, which was basically to wait while the, my background investigation and everything was completed, that was basically my first job out of college. And did it for almost 30 years. So, yes, it was, a, it was an amazing career. Nice. Well, and what, what I always tell people about IRS special agents is, you know, they are badasses because not only are a lot of them CPAs, but they carry guns. So these guys, yeah. you know, so you had to learn how to shoot a gun, right, Don? I did. I, I uh, you know, a lot of people are into guns. I had never shot a gun when I went down to training in Georgia in 1991. Um, yeah, never, never shot a firearm at all. So that was a, you know, interesting experience for a lot of reasons, but, but wow. that was certainly, certainly one of them. Hey Don, uh, smash here. Being an agent makes me think bond. And when I think bond, I'm thinking, do you like no jujitsu and karate? And uh, you have a special car with guns, uh, turrets in the sides and anything like that. How, how do you play? <laughs> Not, not exactly. Uh, you know, special agents movies. have, even even from the time when I started, are assigned a government vehicle um, without gun turrets. Uh, but that's, you know, because the job is designed to be a field work. When you do a, a complex financial investigation, it you know, it requires talking to people, getting out in the field, interviewing people, gathering evidence and whatnot to see if you can build a case. Mm-hmm. And, um, but on the, it's interesting on the question you asked about jujitsu. When I started, there was really no, what's now called in the law enforcement world, defensive tactics, you know, like intermediate yeah. techniques that, that they train you on. And that wasn't until I think the early nineties, maybe towards the late nineties that, you know, that really started to get emphasized in, you know, firearms was always there. But defensive tactics about, you know, if you had to be in hand-to-hand combat, yeah, if somebody right. came after you, how would you, you know, how would you effectively take them down yeah. as an intermediate means? So that, and then that became, and it's still now, a um, integral part of what they call use of force training. Use of force training is, you know, on the one end of the spectrum is obviously worst case scenario, firearm. But, you know, on the other end, if something happens and you have to use your hands, how do you take somebody down? And that's, that's right. And it changes and it's all taught. That's not a, this is really comes to IRS from, you know, the federal law enforcement community. The, the agents, when they train, train at the same location that I went to 30 years ago, which is a federal law enforcement training center. And that training about, you know, firearms protocol, use of force models, defensive tactics, is, you know, from that law enforcement community at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. They come up with, you know, there's, there's obviously been many changes over the years. And they're the ones that will dictate, you know, this is this is the latest methodology. We don't do this anymore. We do this now. Um, so kind of an interesting transition over the years. So, so Don, you go from being a, a really an entry-level special agent in Baltimore to becoming the head of 
an organization or at least the criminal side of, you know, 2,100 agents, you know, talk about some of the highlights, you know, what took you from Baltimore as that, you know, field agent to then becoming the chief of the, of the entire criminal criminal group. Yeah, I got to say it's, that's something that um, is a source of pride for me, for sure, because if I look back over my 30 years, the certainly the last 20 years of my career, the organization was, with the exception of, of Victor Song, who was an agent, most of that period was they brought somebody from the outside in. You know, they would bring an outside attorney in to run the criminal division, and, um, you know, so for me to work my way up from being, a, you know, a, a field special agent all the way up through the ranks to lead the agency was a great privilege and honor for me. And, uh, yeah, I started in Baltimore, but within about a year and a half, I actually, my office was Washington, D.C. And it was interesting at that time. I hadn't started yet, but there was some controversy with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia. And there was actually a period of time that there were no IRS special agents sitting in Washington, D.C. Wow. So when I started, <laughs> can you believe that? No, that's I mean, hard to believe. Wow. It's hard to believe. So there were cases still being worked, but nobody was actually sitting in D.C. There was not an office that was housed. So and I don't even remember what, I wasn't there when that controversy occurred, but in around about 92, 1992, they decided to, you know, repopulate that office and looking for volunteers. And I raised my hand because that, that thought of coming, you know, downtown, the nation's capital, there's got to be great cases going on downtown. And so that was a great move. So they, they eventually populated two groups of, you know, brand new agents like myself and seasoned agents that have been around 15, 20 years. The it, beauty of working, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, Don, I, I was reading up on you on your law uh, business uh, website there, and I'm thinking, what does, just to use the term, the common man think when he looks at being investigated? Why would they, me as a common man, put that much effort into investigating me because I did something wrong on my taxes, but you got these fat cats out in D.C., all over the country, and these guys are like ripping off the system big time, but they're getting away with it, and I'm the guy because I may have hidden $15,000 because I either forgot about it or I hid it. Why am I the guy that's getting busted on this, Don? Hypothetically speaking, Don, of course. Yes, of course. Speaking I hypothetically. Gonna, I was just going to say, it sounds, that sounds like an admission to me. Oh, Don, please. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, Don, you know I met Smash. I met Smash at the subway because he saw my STL tax lawyer truck. He's a troubled taxpayer, <laughs> yeah. but we've taken good care of him. He's all good. Definitely, it's all good. Definitely. Is. It's, a gr- it's a great question. And, and um, you know, you think about the – if you describe that quote unquote common man. Yeah. Most of the time that person you brought up, like why, first of all, a lot of people that, you know, they're having their first experience. They may be dealing with a revenue agent or a revenue officer. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden a special agent getting, gets involved. And for a lot of folks that don't have that experience, they, they have a hard time distinguishing, you know, the, they didn't know that there was a criminal side of the IRS. They probably yeah. didn't know that they could go to jail for a tax crime. 
So the initial shock with a lot of people is surely I could just write a check um, and this will go away. Or, you know, what do you mean I could go to jail? And then it's how on earth, you know, just, just what you said, why are they spending the time on me when we know there's, you know, maybe there's corporations and there's very wealthy individuals that are, you know, more worthy targets. And the answer for that is it's a broad, diverse spectrum of cases at IRSCI works. And you think about it in the simplest terms of, you know, you talk about 2,100 special agents, but of that, you've got supervisors and, and people that aren't working cases. So think about more, the number's probably more like 17, 1800. And there's a hundred and, I don't know, 60 million tax returns filed in any given year, plus, you know, the corporate returns and all the other information returns that are filed. And that being the only agency that can work these tax cases, you've got that number of small number of agents that has to impact deterrence for the entire population of the U.S. And the best way to describe that is you need as many possible types of tax cases, meaning employment tax fraud, international identity theft, return preparers, you know, there's 10 or 12 different categories. You need as many types of those cases in as many judicial districts around the country that cover as, as broad a spectrum of the population as you can get. Because if you think about it, if all you do, if, if IRSCI only did cases on wealthy people in L.A., New York, what kind of message does that send to the rest of the population? And, you know, if they only work identity theft cases, what does that mean to international tax evaders and, you know, bad return preparers? So that's kind of the way I used to describe it is you want, if you had a business there, page of the paper, tax evasion case on so-and-so, um, if my parents or my brothers read that article, that wouldn't necessarily resonate with them because that's not them. They're not billionaires. Um, so you want, you want people that are reading the paper, you know, online, seeing these articles to somehow connect the person that's being charged with that tax crime in some way to their life. If if you're a truck driver and your colleague in your part of the country is involved in some type of a tax crime. You know, that may be not the best example, but it's, you know, in, in the socioeconomics of it all, you want to cover as broad a spectrum as you possibly can of all the different types of tax crimes. Yeah, and Don, Don touched on an important point there. One of the primary goals of CI, and correct me if I'm wrong, though, is that deterrent effect. They want their cases to have an impact to deter others from engaging in that conduct because they can't catch everybody. And I would say... You know, 99.9% of IRS disputes, controversies, are civil in nature. And so the criminal ones tend to be the ones that stand out. Maybe it's a high-profile person, a celebrity, or maybe it's, the like you said, I mean, it could be the local tax preparer who gets, you know, charged with with, uh, preparer fraud. I mean, those all have an impact across the spectrum. Yeah, and that's another interesting point because the unlike, and that's true, 99% you know, when you count correspondence, audits, and everything else, I think that's probably accurate. The amount of time that it takes to work a, a financial criminal tax investigation, 
the simplest case is about 18 months, and that's just investigating to referring to the Department of Justice. If you add in international components and, you know, the need for a grand jury and other factors, that that number can easily double. So it's a huge time commitment for the IRS and DOJ when you get involved in these uh, investigations. But that's the big way that they get the deterrence is through publicity. Yeah, Again, and- totally different than the civil side of the IRS. When you're under audit, you know, they don't go out and publicize it and put, and put it online and put it in the right. paper, thank goodness. But if you are the subject of a criminal tax investigation and you're unfortunate enough to get convicted, the IRS will fight very, very hard to make sure that that gets publicized. And they will fight with, make sure that they have agreement from the Department of Justice. Um, to get the the word out there. And again, the reason is there's so much time and effort and resource that goes into that. If the rest of the public doesn't hear about that, then what's the point of it? That really, and I've heard, you know, many conversations with U.S. attorneys around the country that feel strongly about that. It's not just tax. It's all white collar crime. It's built on, you know, a deterrence model and getting the message out there that the government is out there and there are repercussions. Yeah. And I would also add to that. I mean, it's not like, I mean, the criminal cases, there are generally facts that are, you know, pretty egregious and they don't want to lose those cases. Um, What are some of the things in your experience that, that do trigger a criminal investigation prosecution as opposed to a case just staying civil? In the, the, the simplest terms, you know, the, in, to put it bluntly, it's the lying, cheating, and stealing. Yeah. You know, a lot of the time, it's those, fortunately, sometimes it's those acts that, that people take, you know, to t- try to conceal something. It's the, uh, you know, an, an egregious example. Uh, think of a restaurateur or somebody else that keeps a double set of books and records. There's no, re- there's no legitimate reason to do that. Uh, you're in the course of an audit. Say you're you're being audited by the IRS, and you have you provide some type of false information, false documents. First case I ever worked was a fraud referral on a woman who was under civil audit, relatively small dollar amounts, and she didn't have backup documentation for the things the revenue agents asking for. So she dummied up a bunch of documents, provided them to the revenue agent. It was very obvious they were dummied up. Fraud referral comes over. Um, and again, relatively simple case, simple example. But that's, you know, oftentimes that's, you know, the trigger if it's a civil case to make it a criminal case. Really prevalent now, Mark, and I think your firm does some of these cases, the, the uh, collection cases, what's called on the on the criminal side, an evasion of payment, mm-hmm. you know, the the money that's supposed to be withheld and turned over to the government to pay your social security and federal withholdings. Unfortunately, all too often we see, you know, small businesses and others take that money either for their, for themselves personally or pump it back into the business. But either way, that's a huge source of inventory for both, you know, both on the civil side and the criminal side of the IRS. Yeah. Employment tax cases, just to jump in there. I mean, that's something I know when you were the head of the IRS CI, they really started prioritizing criminal prosecutions and payroll tax cases. Now in the past, those trust fund recovery penalties often, you know, 
money was being used to sort of fund the business. And those are kind of less likely to go criminal. But when you have somebody who's taking the money from their employees pay, not giving it to the IRS and living that lavish, you know, the lifestyle issues that tends to go more criminal. Am I right? Absolutely. And it's different than your typical tax case. And, and, I find judges and juries, if it ever went to a jury, feel differently about those cases than just a run-of-the-mill, like, I forgot to report income or false deductions case, because not only are you ripping off the government, you're harming that employee, right? You, you took their withholdings, and they didn't get credit for it. So it's not just, look as, ah, it's just, you know, it's just the IRS, it's just the government. But in these cases, in most cases, it's individuals that were harmed as well. I want to. I want to. The other. Oh, I just ahead. wanted to make one other point on that, like source of cases, and this won't shock you. So a lot of, you know, maybe half the cases that that CI get and works are referrals from other agencies. If an individual, you know, say the FBI has somebody under investigation for, you know, theft of government funds, uh, it, it's not going to shock you to know that if that person stole government funds. They also didn't report on their tax return. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot of you know that's also a a fertile ground for criminal tax cases. Absolutely. And and another issue or area that I wanted to talk to you about is is cryptocurrency because you were there when cryptocurrency was sort of becoming an issue for you know not only the government but specifically the IRS. I actually handled a a criminal case uh, here in Missouri uh, really early on with crypto. It was, it was kind of a crazy case, but I won't bore you with the details. Time magazine did an article about it and it was basically Mm. an undercover sting where they were, you know, going and buying crypto from a guy. And, and um, I think they thought, Oh, it's going to lead, you know, they thought there was some huge drug trafficking going on related to cryptocurrency. And now since then, we've obviously seen cryptocurrency become much more mainstream. You can go online, Mm -hmm. you can create a Coinbase account, just like, Charles Schwab, um, what yeah. was your experience when you were at the service, you know, in terms of seeing this as an emerging thing? Um, and, and what kind of cases did, did you work on that involved cryptocurrency? It was fascinating to see it, you know, as it evolved inside the IRS. And, and IRS special agents, a, a small set at the beginning, got to be, in my opinion, the worldwide experts in in tracking and tracing crypto because of identity theft, believe it or not. You know, IRS got such a black eye because of, you know, the identity theft and hackers and all this money going out. But in the course of solving that issue, the criminals evolved from, you know, more or less a street crime where they stole paper documents to sophisticated hackers hacking into the system. And when they'd get the funds out, it started to convert it, you know, investigators started to see it getting converted into crypto. So they were, you know, very early on, you know, working to try to figure out, like, we got to figure out how to track this, these funds that are in the cryptocurrency. So that was kind of my first, you know, understanding of what was going on. And then a lot of discussions with, you know, my colleagues in CI, but also the commissioner's office and other leaders of the civil divisions about if you can convert your fiat currency into cryptocurrency and you may or may not be able to, to trace it, depending on what you do with it, then there's got to be some segment of the population that's going to take advantage of that and not report it on their taxes. Huh. And so then you saw, you know, this evolution from, 
we get, we need to go out as the IRS and, you know, tell people what they're expected to do. They remind them that it's taxable and that we're looking at this, you know, what early on to now where you've got, you know, the commissioner publicly testifying that he believes there's a, you know, a percentage of the federal tax gap that is, you know, attributable to cryptocurrency. You've got the, you know, the prior secretary of the treasury, the, you know, the current treasury secretary talking about that it could be used for illicit purposes. And you've got the, you know, that think about foreign bank accounts years ago, we're going back a decade and, you know, that the check the block on the tax return, this goes back, you know, more than decades where you have to disclose your foreign bank account. That's on the schedule B. They started with, you know, have you bought, sold, transacted in cryptocurrency at the bottom of the first page? And I think as everybody knows, at least if you print out your tax return now, that, that question appears right after your name and address. Mm-hmm. You know, so it just demonstrates to you how, you know, how vehemently the IRS believes that there's a non-compliance problem here. Absolutely. And then you see the crypto, just sh- think about the sheer volume. If you bought crypto, you know, even at $100, you could be sitting on, you know, and you, you sold it or transacted with it. You could be, you know, the amount of tax could be huge. Yeah, no, it, it, and to your point, I mean, for them to take up space on the 1040 shows how serious it is for the IRS. And also it tees up a relatively easy crime. If, if you check that box, no, and they can right. show that you were engaging in significant you know, cryptocurrency transactions and not reporting them, that's going to be a pretty easy criminal case to make, especially when, you know, with all these summonses going out to Coinbase and others. Right. A lot of information out there, right? Absolutely. Right. Um, so, Don, while we've got you, I want to get, like, just your big highlights. What were some of the cases that stood out that you can tell us about? I know you were uh, you were there with the Varsity Blues uh, scandal, the college, admission, the college admissions um, yeah. deal that landed Becky from Full House in in uh, in hot water. R.I.P. <laughs> Bob Saget. About, I know you were sad about that. I was, but R.I.P. Bob Saget as well. While we, while we uh, have these yeah. moments, uh, but was that? I mean, tell us about because that obviously involved multiple agencies, not just the IRS. So talk a little bit about kind of how those investigations work when you've got you know, multiple agencies at play. The two, you know, on that varsity blues, the the and I'll and. You know, I have to preface it by saying when you're the head of an agency, you've got a lot of responsibility. And I'd like to say claim credit for it. But obviously, you've got investigators that are several levels below me that were the ones that really made this happen. You mean you didn't do the perp walk with Becky? You didn't do the perp walk? I would have been front and center. I'd say I'm the chief. I'll step in here to do the perp walk. I asked (laughs) and demanded, but they wouldn't let me. He didn't do anything. (laughs) This was really an FBI IRS case and interestingly really both played, you know, a critical role. It's a, it's an example. If you've worked for the IRS for 30 years, um, you know that you're not going to get the same billing as the FBI because people want to read about the FBI. It's this aura about it. So they get, a, you know, amazing publicity. But this was really, uh, and, you know, a 50 50 effort and the primary Defendant Rick Singer in that investigation that was a you know it was a tax conspiracy you know was the primary charge there and you know so you had IRS special agents working alongside FBI special agents 
contrary to the documentary I think that was on Netflix that only showed <laughs> showed FBI agents. But that um, one's a good example of you know the primary guy was a tax conspiracy, but because of the jurisdiction that IRSCI has, the ability to you know the to be able to work money laundering investigations, bank secrecy act investigations. What it boils down to is any sophisticated, you know, high dollar, high profile financial crime at the federal level is likely going to involve IRSCI. You know, if, if it involves money, and frankly, at the federal level, with the you know the exception maybe of murder, and even that one would probably classify also. What crime doesn't involve some type of greed or money? So U.S. attorneys have this ability, right? U.S. attorneys have this ability to say, okay, the, the FBI is great at doing this. You know, they've got thousands more agents. Um, you know, DEA can do this, but IRSCI specializes in following the money. So let's get, you know, let, let's, let's try to leverage the power of the government, that, you know, and, and complementary skills. And so that's why you see on these big financial cases, multi-agencies and and really each agency doing what they do best yeah here in st louis for example i mean the postal inspector is a major contributor to, to federal white collar crimes you know often working with the fbi and and internal revenue service ci so it's kind of interesting to to see how they all um yeah they're like one of the small mighty ones also there's a, a great agency also but yeah depending on where you are sometimes you barely hear about postal inspectors. Now, let me ask you a question, man, just coming on the personal side. If it's too personal, too deep, feel free to maintain uh, your, Uh-oh. your, okay. You want to so, know about my crypto holding? No, 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 no. Here, here's what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, wow, this is just a heavyweight cat an intriguing dude. And I'm thinking to myself, I know for me, I was a DJ. In fact, at DC 101 for a number of years. Uh, and I was a DJ, and I was able to hold on to my wife with uh, free T-shirts, free concert tickets, free albums, uh, free all that kind of stuff DJs get. How are you able to maintain a marriage being the kind of guy that you had to be and or have to be in this particular line of work, man? <laughs> That's the toughest question you guys have asked. <laughs> I just think this guy does all kinds of stuff. How does he hold no, on a, to a thirty-one? A time, yeah, there was a time that we were. My wife was one year ahead of me, and there was a time we were both thinking about pursuing this line of work. Huh. And I think I, I think that wouldn't have worked out very well. You know, uh. it's, it's, a, it's a you know long long hours and traveling that would have been an unbelievable strain. Um, but just you know, I think having having good mentors over the years and being able to to step back and like you said, being a DJ, like I, I had a hobby, you know, it was always important to have friends outside of work and things you wanted right. to do outside of work and spending time right. with friends and relatives. And, and unfortunately we all see people that, that pass away too early. And those, those are always the wake up calls. Like you got to take advantage. Yeah. Work is great. It provides for you. It's really fulfilling. But you've got to have this balance and take advantage of, you know, other things in your life, whether it's your kids or your wife or other hobbies, because, you know, who knows? Your number could be up tomorrow, unfortunately. Yep. So are you a Steelers fan? Sorry to bring it up. I am. Yeah. The yeah, Chiefs no, got well, you guys. I, I thought they put yeah, up a better fight last week, but. I 
thought it was a pitiful performance. It unfortunately, was. it was yeah. sad that it was that was likely Ben's last uh, last hurrah. And they wouldn't let him in and at the end. When we do when we do version two of this podcast, we can go back and recap some of the Steeler victories over over Kansas City over the last decade. Oh, burnt. Well, I'm not a Chiefs fan. <laughs> I haven't jumped on the Chiefs bandwagon yet. I'm still pretty salty over the Rams uh, leaving St. Louis, and I know a lot of people have. Kind of yeah. jumped on the Kansas City bandwagon, but I'm I'm just not there yet. Um, but I do want to talk. Good. Well, we got just a couple minutes. I want to hear about what you're doing yeah. now. You're with Costellance and Fink, great law firm, uh, offices in D.C., New York. You know, just a major player in the tax controversy world. So you've you know retired from the IRS after a long, uh, dedicated career. Now you're in private practice. What's that adjustment been like for you? It's it's been an easy adjustment for me. You know, a number of the attorneys that that I work with, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to meet in various speaking, you know, uh, gigs around the country over the years. So I knew them and respected them. Well, you probably knew Jay, and Jay Nanavati and Caroline from. I knew Jay, I knew Caroline, I knew Megan mm-hmm. um, and Brian primarily. So that, you know, that, that was a, it was a, it was an easier transition transition than I thought, you know, going from law enforcement to a law firm. Uh, it is a great firm. You know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, fortunate to have a lot of flexibility. So I, believe it or not, uh, people still want to hear me speak. Sometimes I know, I know those days are probably they'll come to an end at some point. But I still get an opportunity to speak a fair, fair amount. You know, to to get out there and talk about, you know, various topics. But it's it's interesting that over the last year. I still speak a lot about IRSCI, and and now that I'm out, I can speak more freely about what IRSCI does, and you know what a great agency it is. So I I still get to do some of that work. I do have you know work with clients who um, are either under investigation, you know, for a tax violation, or under audit in in both scenarios. So that's that's a part of my work. And then I do, um, I actually do some consulting work with data analytics firms and crypto firms and things like that. Part of, you know, I had a intense interest in those fields when I was with IRSCI. So now I work with some, you know, startup companies and small companies and also just general consulting. People know, you know, my background and what I did and try to help them with various problems and work on whistleblower claims. It's a real you know, diverse inventories. It's been, other than being largely remote, it's been extremely enjoyable and a great transition. Hey, Don, let me ask you, man, you're talking about that IRSCI, and I'm thinking to myself, what if they made a TV series out of that? Who would play you? Oh, you know, that was, there was discussions for a while about a TV show, but then I think they came up with another um, NCIS program. Yeah, right. (laughs) Who would play me? Hmm. I don't know. I'm going to have to let you guys select that one. Hmm. I'd say uh, somebody like Brad Pitt, man, because you got that look. You got that look, You never met me, though. I'm probably a foot and a half taller than Brad Pitt. No, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. I just based on that picture I saw at the uh, law firm website. Yeah, he's a tall guy. What are you, are you, what are you six, six? Six, four. Six, four? All right, six, four. That's what I'm, I'm six, four as well. So I guess, you know, you you slender though. I feel like yeah. when you're slender, unlike myself, you seem taller. You know, you know, can I say something you got? <laughs> sure. My son does the same kind of work that Don does, 
I got a better education at it from Don than from my son because he won't tell me that? anything. What did he do? Yeah, wait, I didn't know that. He he does that uh, kind of oh, the spy. Would you? No, it's not a spy. But what Don was talking about, he works through numbers. Looks, he was cheating. Forensic accounting. Yeah, he does yeah. that no, too. He's not an IRS agent. No, he's not. So you got to help him a little bit more. <laughs> no. Now you now you know. Now you know some of the topics you can grill them on. Yeah, exactly, man. There you go. Exactly. Well, Don, we really appreciate you joining the uh, the Mark Milton show here. This has been a lot of fun. I look forward to uh, getting another steak with you next time we're uh, at a conference together. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate it. It was a great time. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Take care. That was Don Fort, former chief of the criminal investigation. That's, that's, one, of the, dude, that's one of the best guests we've had, I would yeah, say. Solly. dude there, man. I mean, it was a good interview, but I don't think I will be recording that podcast with him because he has some of the worst taste in football I've ever seen. <laughs> the, Steel, <laughs> the Steelers. It's on the Steelers. Did you see the, the end of the game? I felt almost bad when Big Ben was trying to get another touch, like get a touchdown, which yeah. actually, in hindsight, like it would have been kind of sad. Like That would have been kind of pathetic to just let him get a touchdown. After, Just to do it, and then they tackled him at the two-yard line. Kick my Browns rear end for the past 17 years or so, and having to deal with him for the longest time being the winningest quarterback at Cleveland Browns' first energy stadium. There's no love lost there. Well, we appreciate uh, Don joining us. That interview was uh, very informative. I feel like people don't know a lot about Righto. criminal IRS investigations, people get notices, they get scared when they get those. But, I mean, if you're under criminal investigation, that's a much bigger deal, a much scarier uh, proposition. Well, that's why it's important, too, with anything when it's tax-related, because the laws are so cut and dry and there's so many nuances. It's just why it's a no-brainer to go to a professional, whether it's a tax lawyer, whether it's someone who specializes in the criminal investigation. Look at Sally kissing kissing up to the STL tax lawyer. You can check out more about Don Ford. You can visit (laughs) Kate. KFLaw.com. That's Costalance and Fink. KFLaw.com. Check them out. Down for Mr. Milton, I saw it as him giving you a blatant plug. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But But see, that's one thing. Like you said, you said things are cut and dry. Actually, with taxes, that's the best defense to a criminal case is ignorance of the law. Because a lot of people don't know taxes. And so, like he said, it's usually a case where it's clear cut. Lying, cheating, and stealing yeah. that gets somebody in really hot water with the IRS versus just sort of ignorance, noncompliance, you know, failing to make payments or do things yeah. like that. So it's an interesting line there between what's civil and what's criminal. And they don't want to lose. That's the thing. They don't want to lose. Exactly. And that's also why I would never handle that on my own. There you go. You'd come to the STL tax lawyer. All right. You're listening to the Mark Millen Show with the Smash and Sally broadcasting from the Miller Furniture Studios presented by STLTaxLawyer.com. You can check us out. Anytime you can download the podcast at themarkmiltonshow.com. You can also listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher. I think we figured out we're on, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Spotify. Spotify. That's really cool. anywhere. Anywhere you podcast, uh, you can find us. So check it out, themarkmiltonshow.com or anywhere you get your podcast. I think we wrap it up this week. I think that was. Uh, that's it. Will you come back for another segment? Let's do one more segment about I'm what we were talking about. I'm fine with that. Man. All right, we'll come we're back rolling. and do another segment right after the break. We're rolling. <laughs> 